0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the ACES Cast. My name is Gulnaz Sibkatulina, and in this podcast, I talk to researchers affiliated with the Amsterdam Center for European Studies about their ongoing research projects, academic journey, and favorite books. My guest today is Sudha Raja Hello, Sudha. Hello, Gulnaz. Sudha is senior lecturer in East European Studies. She has special teaching and research interests in Russian cultural studies, Soviet cultural history, historical media, and new media cultures. She is also on the steering committee of the international peer-reviewed journal Digital Icons and a guest columnist in The Wire, India's main digital platform for independent journalism. Sudha, the start of your academic career coincided with major transformations in the world, namely the end of the Cold War and the consequent transition to a multipolar international system. As we talked before, you obtained your first master's degree from the University of Mumbai in 91, and next year you traveled to Russia and probably witnessed tectonic shifts triggered by the Soviet Union's collapse. Tell us a little bit more about what made you learn Russian in the first place and whether the events of the early 90s have influenced your academic interests.
1: Well, thank you, Gulnaz, for inviting me for this. Um, What made me study Russian in the first place? Well, these were the late 80s. Uh, India and the Soviet Union had a very close friendship. I was also in a stage in my life where I was determined not to do anything with Western Europe, which is why it's deeply ironic that I'm now here. Um, And I was very interested in Russian because we had just had... The year of, uh, I think it was called the year of the Soviet Union or something. In India, they'd had uh, festivals of music and dance and literature all over the country. Um, we also had a fair amount of exposure to Soviet cinema and uh, other such cultural artifacts. And I was left-leaning, I always have been. So it seemed like the perfect combination of things. Plus, I wanted to be different from all of my classmates. So uh, that was the reasoning at first. That was in 87, 1987, and I finished studying in 1991 at the Soviet Consulate in Bombay, in Mumbai now, and that was the year, of course, the Soviet Union fell apart. So I had received a scholarship to go and study at the Institute of Russian Language, uh, the Pushkin Institute in Moscow. But there was some doubt about whether that would now happen because the Soviet Union had no idea of how it was going to proceed. So I was going to go in August 1991. The coup happened. And then they said, wait until December. And then it was clear there was no Soviet Union anymore. So I decided to apply to America to do a Ph.D. in Russian history. But in the meantime, the consulate said, well, we still have the money and you can go in 1992, in October. So I went in 1992, October, and I have to say that some of these transformations that you talk about were not immediately evident, right? I mean, uh, my my degree from the Pushkin Institute still says and said at the time, USSR. So nothing had changed very much. There were still queues at the stores. There were some people selling uh, wares outside supermarkets, but nothing had really changed In my view, I was still hanging out at the Institute with thousands of other students from the Global South. So it felt very much like the Soviet Union that I had heard about. Some of the things that you mentioned in terms of this becoming a multipolar world only happened gradually by the end of the 1990s. So I must admit that at the time, given my own sort of self-centeredness also in my uh, early 20s, that I was not very affected by what was going on. And I was just completely taken with being in Russia and being with Russians and just being immersed in that experience uh, and attending communist gatherings in 1992. I had some sense of loss, I have to admit, uh, because this was the country I had known and heard about and wanted to go to. And now suddenly people were saying it was different and it appeared to be different. So it also motivated me then to go further in my study of what had been and, you know, what was going to happen. So I think that if the Soviet Union hadn't collapsed, I might have continued with doing a PhD in Indian history because my MA had been Indian history. So I think that maybe the event and that sense of a break and a rupture made me feel like this was something that I wanted to hold on to. I think it was my way of holding on to a country that I had learned
0: about earlier. Yeah, indeed, India and the Soviet Union, of course, had a very special connection. And in your doctoral work, you studied the reception of Indian cinema in the post-Stalinist Soviet era, which sounds like a fascinating topic. In your later project, though, you continued analyzing TV media consumption in post-Soviet Russia, especially under the current incumbent president Vladimir Putin. Tell us a little bit more. What kind of insights does such a focus on the cultural rather than directly political side of media have the potential to provide? Yeah, I mean, let me
1: first start with the historical media, right? So with the project on the reception of Indian cinema uh, in the Soviet Union, what was key to me was understanding, uh, one, how people related to the films themselves, but also understanding what the films were doing in the first place. So in my mind's eye at the time, looking at culture and looking at reception, especially this was the late 90s, early 2000s, when there were very few Soviet cultural histories, it was important for me to get a new perspective on how people related to cultural artifacts, but also to the state vis-a-vis those cultural artifacts. So for instance, for me, what was interesting was that not only did people talk about how much they loved Indian cinema, what it opened up for them in terms of another world, but also how it related to their own perception of their lived experience in the Soviet Union. So they would also tell me about life in the Soviet Union in the 50s and 60s. Additionally, what, what it opened up, culturally speaking, but also politically, was this sense that the Soviet state was incredibly responsive to audience needs which is of course, I mean, now in 2021, this is something we've all learned to acknowledge. But in in 2000, when I was writing my dissertation, this was not something that was being said in Soviet histories at all. So, there were two things. One, why these audiences were keen on Indian cinema. They were interested in the love, the romance, all of that. Um, They considered there to be some sort of cultural affinity between the Slavic soul and the Indian. But of course, I also had Central Asian interlocutors who also said there were affinities. But also, I was really intrigued by the high degree of responsiveness of the Soviet state to what they called officially bourgeois mindless cinema. But then they would import more and more of it every year. So culture was key to opening up a prism of ties between people and the state. Now, under Putin, the same logic applies. I'm interested in how people use digital media or respond to television and how their commentary on what they see is, in fact, inextricably linked to the way they see their reality. So I think that this kind of uh, research, what it does is that it also changes the lens of how people look at subjects in authoritarian societies, right? Because, I mean, aren't we all tired of this regime change lens? I mean, the only kind of subjective practice that we acknowledge in this part of the world is if people want to change the political order. But people, as I said to you earlier, are also sort of, you know, getting up, having a day, doing other things and fighting smaller battles. What are these battles? What are the meaningful battles in their lives? You know, I mean, not everyone is always centered on replacing Putin? What are the battles that they fight? What are the uh, important political contestations in their everyday life, right? So that is something that comes to light when you look at how they use uh, media, digital media nowadays, or respond to television on digital media. So both of these ways, I think that culture is key to understanding
0: subjectivity. Could you give maybe an example of the current topics that you're researching?
1: Well, several. For instance, the one of the recent ones that I've written about, uh, episodes I've written about, or processes, phenomena, is the celebrity of uh, Diana Shurigina, who was raped, right? And her rapist also served time in prison. And she appeared on television and uh, in this show. Let Them Speak. And she was asked to talk about her experience and what had happened. And, the, and I have an essay out, an article out on this episode about the ways in which television, in a sense, acts to perpetuate misogyny. The thing is, the nature of the media platforms is such that Diana Shuridina, she's subjected to ridicule, you know, in the way that most rape victims are, rape survivors. You don't look traumatized. You don't look sad. You you were you always kind of, uh, you were very let's say, sexually promiscuous. So she's subjected to all of this. But then she has gone on to use other digital platforms like the video blog, that kind of thing, to create a celebrity culture around herself. So this is a new kind of feminism what we call post-feminism, which is not interested in structural inequality, but is interested in talking about the female body as being, you know, my own, and therefore I do with it what I will. It's a new kind of feminism. But at any rate, we might think differently about feminism. But what it is, is a kind of counterpoint to the kind of misogyny that she was subjected to. So this is the kind of work that I do when I work on digital media.
0: And your current research project is also um, an interesting one uh, about how certain Soviet objects, and here we talk about books, gadgets, or souvenirs, travel during the Cold War years into India and Cuba. Also in itself, very interesting choice of countries. And maybe we can talk about why exactly these countries. But in my perception, for many people today, Soviet material culture is a variety of artifacts that remind us about undoubtedly impressive, but also very controversial socialist experiment of the 20th century. What do those objects mean to your Okay, maybe I should start with why Cuba and India, right? Well, for one, I mean,
1: the purpose of this project is to, in some sense, decolonize Cold War studies, right? I mean, kind of like with the the project on indian cinema and the soviet union i'm interested in you know relations between the east bloc and the global south that suggests that these ties were not simply you know the soviet union being some sort of benefactor because traditional histories of these ties would say the soviet union sent so many fighter jets and you know so many uh, weapons and so many books and but then what happens once these things go there right and and purpose of this project is in that sense to understand that these were reciprocal relations and also that countries of the global south had a tremendous impact on the east Bloc. That's one. Why Cuba and why India? India, for obvious reasons, I can work on India, but also it has a certain political ambiguity, which makes it very interesting, right? Because it was non-aligned. It was with neither the east nor the west Bloc. It was closely allied with the Soviet Union, but at the same time, it got a lot of aid of various t- sorts, and I had, it had good relations with countries in the West. So what do these Soviet objects mean in a country which had ties with both sides? Did they have the same meaning as they did in countries where there was really only one side that was accessible? With Cuba, there is some of that cuba of course i just wanted to do a different country and learn about a new place so there was that logic but also cuba in itself has a certain political ambiguity because although it was communist right the revolution itself in 59 they only announced that it would be communist in 1960 when america pulled out and they and the soviet union stepped in to help so it was a little bit of an afterthought you know and secondly Cubans, from what I had been reading at the time, were very, very specific and very particular about saying that this was not a Soviet-influenced revolution, and they were not influenced by the Soviets, that they had a distinctive Cuban political culture, and their allegiance lay with Castro. So I liked this political ambiguity because the Soviet object, when it goes abroad, is meant to generate sympathy and alliance and kind of support. And I was curious whether that happened in these two countries that in so many other ways demonstrated a kind of political ambiguity. So that's why I chose these two countries. The second part of your question
0: had to do with. So what do these objects mean to them?
1: Yeah. Well, the thing about this question, Gulnaz, is that there are so many kinds of objects that traveled. And two, every object is part of a particular culture of give and take or a particular economy, which means that what people are saying is very dependent on the context in which they acquired the object uh, and also the nature of the object. So, for instance, it makes a difference whether they're talking about an iron or a dishwasher that they acquired as a reward in a working place in Havana or if they're talking about a jail teacup, which was given to them by their PhD supervisor because they worked so hard in Moscow, or a Soviet book that an Indian interlocutor just chanced upon when rummaging through the flea market in Bombay. So each of these contexts is very different and has an effect on the way they talk about those artifacts. So my book has many parts to it. But just to give you a sense of each of these right when you talk about the soviet appliance in india and cuba one one little caveat here is that india never had a formal trade in commodities with the soviet union so any soviet appliances that found their way to india simply found their way by chance sometimes soviet tourists would come to india and they would exchange a soviet camera for indian souvenirs because they were not allowed to spend more than a certain amount of soviet money on on souvenirs anywhere in the world right so it is possible that many of these appliances came that way because my Indian interlocutors cannot remember where they got their Soviet appliances. You know, they literally chanced upon them. In Cuba, the case is different because Soviet appliances were everywhere and they were also assembled in Cuba, right? So when the Cubans talk about Soviet appliances, there is one level at which they're talking about the commodity. So they will say, hmm, it worked fine and, you know, it was bulky and it was ugly, but it worked forever, right? The usual kind of comment about Soviet material culture, but at another level, they They will very quickly go from the materiality of the appliance to the larger story about gratitude and solidarity and the Soviets being with them, even though the Americans had inflicted this embargo on them and continue to do so. So there are two levels at which people relate and talk about commodities, the actual commodity itself and the meanings it has come to acquire over the years. So in that sense, both the Indians and the Cubans will say the materiality itself was okay; Things lasted, you know. But the larger story they like to share is the fact that they're impressed with the simplicity, with the accessibility of Soviet things, and the fact that things lasted, and they will also say, well, you know, but they were willing to work with us. They never imposed technology, the Cubans will say. They used to send things and then they would have Caribbean names for them or they would have, uh, they would adapt technology to suit Cuban local conditions. So my Cuban interlocutors call this the tropicalization of commodities. And my Indian interlocutors wouldn't talk about that because they, this was not formal trade, but they would talk about the simplicity, the accessibility. And then they would say, you know, Uh, More than that, I mean, this was just um, a country that had supported us in many ways. So one felt a certain degree of empathy. I have to say not a whole lot, in, according to my interlocutors, but some. So it's not so much the material things, but the story around them. With books, it's different. My Indian interlocutors are passionate about their Soviet books. And the interesting thing is they grew up with Soviet children's books, they, but they also read Dostoevsky, all of this, and they also read Anglo-American literature, and they also read India's own literature. So they were able to, in a sense, talk about their Soviet books in comparison with with all these others. And they would say that Soviet books felt more real because we grew up with Anglo-American literature. But, you know, things like going horseback riding on the weekend and, you know, I mean, a snuggling in front of a fireplace during the winter. I mean, obviously, people did wintry things in Soviet books as well. But somehow there was also many other aspects that were very relatable. People worked. I have interlocutors who tell me in Soviet books, people went to work. In the Anglo-American children's literature, you never heard of parents' work. Children were always out having adventures. And interestingly, children were also very autonomous. Whereas in Soviet books, you always see family or some community. So this was very real to Indians who are always surrounded by people, right? Either family, friends, other people. You can't get away from people. So, I mean, this was very relatable. I mean, those conversations are very enjoyable in the way they talk about it. And then they talk about this larger solidarity as well. And then with gifts and souvenirs, you know, across India and Cuba, these are shrouded in personal relationships of travel, of studying, of friendship. So here geopolitics takes place. It evolves on a geosocial plane, you know. And I think that it's something that we don't talk about enough when we talk about geopolitics, maybe because friendship and intimacy is not interesting enough. But these are key to why geopolitical ties Endure and also why they feel real. No one talked to me about large events. Everyone talked to me about this kind of day to day experience. So each of these objects, depending on their nature, depending on the context of their acquisition, gives us a different story. You know, I mean, I had one fantastic object in Cuba, a, a Soviet cookbook. And I asked how she'd got this book. And she said that she was a nurse who tended to the kids who were brought to Cuba after the Chernobyl uh, accident. So they had been sent to Cuba because Cuba has incredible healthcare, And. Uh, all of these children who had been affected by the Chernobyl uh, accident were brought to Cuba for medical treatment. Many of them are still there getting treatment because of ra- radiation effects and everything. So uh, she was one of the nurses who tended to these kids. And one of the Soviet parents gave her the Soviet cookbook as a token of her gratitude. So each of these artifacts has this large story, you know, of political ties. I mean, if you were to write the story of Soviet-Cuban ties and just talk about how kids went there, then it's Interesting. But then, when you look at the artifacts that changed hands and the personal stories,
0: then geopolitics acquires an intimacy that it doesn't otherwise have. Yeah. And in this context, I just wanted to return to a phrase that you just said in the beginning of your answers that saying that looking at the objects and how they traveled and how they were perceived helps us to rethink the Cold War dichotomies, because usually, I mean, we all see it as an ideological tension between the United States and the Soviet Union, between their respective allies in the Western Bloc and the Eastern Bloc. So how do memories of Cuban and Indian citizens help us to reconsider how the Cold War was lived and perceived in the Global South?
1: Yeah, great question. Thank you. I mean, this is why I mentioned the political ambiguity at the beginning, right? Because what you see, and I remember that this is also one of the motivations for my work, because the fact that I went from India to America, and the way in which the Soviet Union and America were talked about as these kind of irreconcilable blocks, And of course, this was the early 90s when I was in America. So there was a sense of victory, right, uh, over the Soviet Union. But this is not how I saw either block growing up in India you know, because uh, we were non-aligned, we had equal exposure to both. And I would say perhaps even more exposure to North America and Anglo-American cultures because of uh, having been a former colony. So the whole ideological binary that was taught to me in the 1990s, right, uh, of the, the Cold War, the binary of the Cold War, didn't seem to match my understanding of Cold War reality in the Global South. Only in the 1990s, few people were interested in the Global South. So it felt like my own memory of this was irrelevant to how people saw Cold War, the Cold War. That, of course, changed with my book. And subsequently, of course, now decolonizing Cold War studies is a a big thing. So, I mean, I've gone back to my original work and I think that what happens with these objects is that the way they are used and the way they come come to occupy spaces in Indian and Cuban homes with things from other parts of the world makes it impossible for those who use them to see these worlds as disparate, right? So for instance, the Indian interlocutor who has a Soviet book uh, and Enid Blyton, uh, I don't know, and then some other kind of American classic right next to each other and sees no problem with this intermingling of literary universes and of course a a literature opens up a world so in effect by extension it's the intermingling of these worlds that is the lived experience of the cold war for us you know the same way i thought that might be less in cuba but it wasn't because people had objects from before the revolution that were american so the average cuban home has a soviet sewing machine a german record player You know, an American iron, um, and of course, sometimes an American vintage car. So, I mean, there were ways in which, and of course, these things came to have different meaning. You know, for instance, the Soviet car was a symbol of social mobility after the revolution in a way that the American car wasn't. So, I'm not saying that their meanings didn't change, but I'm just saying that they problematize this idea of uh, the two being irreconcilable, right? Because material traces make it hard for you to keep things apart, you know? As long as you don't have these things, you can maybe pretend that they're impossible to mix. But if you have these things in the house, they act as constant reminders of the other, you know? And so you don't see the world in these stark ways. So I think that the biggest takeaway for me is, of course, at the one level, what they're saying about the objects and how they're shrouded in social relationships and ideas about solidarity but another level what they're doing is that they're suggesting a kind of cosmopolitanism in the global south right where they are rejecting this idea that they had to show affinity with one or the other and uh, you know and making a really a sort of eclectic mix of both and choosing to uh, demonstrate their affinities with both in interesting ways in local
0: particular ways And we talked already a little bit about books and how important they can be for a person. And here I'm coming to our unfortunately closing question. What book would you suggest our listeners should add to their must-read list? Yes, I, of course, had trouble
1: with this, as I'm sure all of your other guests did. But I decided, and actually this was after talking to a thesis student of mine yesterday, that I realized that I constantly recommend this book. So this must be one of my favorite ones. It's a book by Annette Kuhn. And uh, it was published in 2002. It's called An Everyday Magic, Cinema and Cultural Memory. I read it at a time when I was interested in working on this project of Indian cinema. But there were no uh, histories of the Soviet Union of reception available. And the only works available option had to do with the contemporary and not with history. So what Anit Kuhn does is that she does this amazing cultural history, oral history of how moviegoers related to cinema in the 1930s. So she does interviews, but she also juxtaposes them with fan letters, which I did in my dissertation as well. So Annette Kuhn became my kind of model book. And it's wonderful because it shows you that people relate to media in ways that are socially and politically relevant. So not only do people talk about movies, they talk about the context in which they saw the movies, they talk about how they felt, they talk about who they went with. So the whole, the sociality but also the political significance and also the cinematic significance all of this comes together these interviews so it became a kind of model work for me and now i realize that i go back to it all the time because it showed me that you can be a historian and have an interest in the kinds of questions that had previously engaged only media studies people who did contemporary media. So I was able to bring together my interests and I continue to go back to it like even with this current project where I do an oral history and it has to do with objects but also how they shroud these objects in other stories. So absolutely Anit Kuhn and Everyday Magic and it's also very readable.
0: Thank you very much Sudha for being with us and sharing your thoughts. Thank you very much Gulnaz. Join us for the next episode as we talk to Anna van Daun about perks of academia, combating harmful content on the internet and freedom of speech. Stay tuned.